Hello, and welcome back to the Fairview Knox Church Podcast. I'm Jeremy Cummings. I'm the creative director here at Fairview, and I have the pleasure of bringing to you today a whole new podcast. It's called Deep Dive. It's a look right into God's Word in a completely different way than maybe you have ever experienced. Our teaching pastor, Richie Beeler, is your host of this podcast series, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to him as we get started. Deep Dive. So welcome into our study of the book of Ephesians. We are still in chapter one, and as we talked about the last time we were together, there are powerful themes that run through the book of Ephesians. One of those themes that emerges immediately in the first chapter is the sovereignty of God, and today's passage certainly will not be devoid of discussion about the sovereignty of God. It's it's one of those subjects that's it's so powerful, it's so overarching to life, but it's also a subject that has created a lot of differing opinions and views doctrinally within the body of Christ, and uh, sometimes those have led to some uh, rather unfriendly uh, debates and even divisions, and that's uh, a sad thing because it certainly is not a subject that we should uh, shy away from. Um, I believe God means for us to wrestle with his word and certainly even uh, and especially the deeper and more difficult subjects. But today's passage in Ephesians 1, I believe, brings up for us a really, really important question. And, and that question is this, why do we do what we do? And it doesn't get much more basic than that, does it? You know, whether whether you're talking about Someone in the ministry, someone who volunteers in ministry, someone who simply attends church and is involved in the different ministries of the church, or even outside the walls of the church itself. Why do we do what we do in this Christian life? Uh, why do we Why do we go to church? Why do we get involved in ministry? Why do we have Bible studies? And why do we go to them? And, and why do we run this race in the first place? Why do we do it? John Piper, uh, who many of you I'm sure are familiar with, he asked a similar question in a message he preached uh, over a decade ago. Uh, I heard this message at a passion conference, and Dr. Piper asked it this way, what is at the bottom of your joy? In other words, what's the bottom line in why you find joy in the Lord or as a as a Christian. Well, I think I think this passage in Ephesians 1 is going to give us uh, some insight into that question and its answer. So, we're going to begin in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 1 and this is what the text says in the New King James version. It says in him also we have obtained an inheritance. The him, the capital H I M in this chapter of course refers to Jesus. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined, there's that $50 word, right? According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, this verse, verse 11, tells us a couple of very important things about ourselves as children of God. The first one is that we have an inheritance, and the second one is, we are predestined. Now, there, there's a very important qualification, first of all, about our inheritance, right? It's where? It's in him. It is in Jesus. It's, it's not just ours, right? We, we ourselves are not entitled to this inheritance. 
In fact, it is only ours because it is his. He is, Jesus is, according to uh, Colossians, the firstborn of all creation or, or over all creation. Now, be careful when you hear that because that, that's, that does not mean that Jesus is a created being, okay? It, it, it does not mean that Jesus came into existence when he was born. That term firstborn is a term about rights of inheritance. It means that Jesus has the firstborn rights of inheritance to all the Father has. In other words, everything that exists in the heavenly realms and in the natural realms, everything, it's all. Jesus has rights of firstborn inheritance of all those things. And and because the Father has adopted us, well, we get to share in everything that Jesus gets. But there's also something very important in this verse about our predestination. It says that we have obtained this inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his own will. We are predestined for something, but how exactly are we predestined according to the text? Well, the text says we're predestined according to God's purpose. It's crazy, but it is true that when a lot of people see this word predestined, they immediately think heaven or hell. I mean, there's like there's there's no other place for their for their mind to go when they hear that word predestined, heaven or hell, saved or lost. God either predestines people for heaven or he predestines people for hell. Well, regardless of what you may believe about that, and I certainly hope you don't believe the latter of those two things, that God predestines people for hell. But regardless of what you believe about that, that's not what this passage is talking about. Uh, now, we're going to see very soon what we're predestined for, uh, but let's let's first talk about the how or the the according to. We, we are predestined, the text says, according to God's purpose. God has a purpose. I hope you believe that. God has a purpose not only for all of creation and all of history and all of the future, for his entire the entirety of the universe, but God also has a purpose for his church. God has a purpose for your life and my life. Uh, now, Beth Moore likes to say that you better know Satan has a purpose for it too. That's another subject we can get into maybe at another time, but, but it's wonderful to know that God has a purpose. But the, the question that this verse brings up for us is how did, how did he decide that purpose? <laughs> how did God decide that purpose? Well, here's what Paul tells us in the text. It says he sought wise and trusted counsel. He asked himself. <laughs> God, God does everything according to the counsel of his own will. I can sort of imagine the conversation, right, in, 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 in my, my finite imagination, right? It's like God, uh, was deciding uh, how to purpose, uh, what purpose he was going to work in in my life. And he said, uh, son, what do you think? Spirit, what do you think? Oh, I think we should do what you think, Father. And so it's like God needs advice or counsel from no one but himself to determine every purpose. He works. Now, now the Bible says that he works all things, right? Specifically, it says he works all things. Now, I want to ask you this question. Does that mean if he works all things according to the counsel of his own will, 
we get what that means, that the counsel of his own will means God needs to ask no one but himself. But what does it mean that he works all things? Does that mean that God is literally and directly causing all things to happen? Well, I actually don't believe that's true. I don't believe God directly causes everything to happen. Otherwise, God would be the direct cause of sin, and that would undermine and, in fact, nullify the character of God that we know is true and is revealed in Scripture. So so what does it mean? If it doesn't mean that God is causing everything to happen, what does it mean that he works all things according to the counsel of his will? Well, I believe that it means that God is taking everything that does happen within the framework of his sovereign permission, and he's working it all out to the end that he desires. And he can do that, by the way. <laughs> he can do that, by the way. He, Regardless of what the happenings are, this is what makes God God, okay? Regardless of what the happenings are, God can still work them to the desired end of his sovereign purposes. Now, that's true sovereignty at the God level. You and I tend to think of sovereignty according to our human limitations, right? Uh, for, for you and me to think about being sovereign over something, then we, we would certainly have to control every detail of it, right? I mean, in order for something to work out exactly like I want it to work out, I would need to control every single detail of every aspect of it. Well, that's not true of God. God is actually so sovereign and so powerful and so omnipotent and omniscient, all-knowing, all-wise, and all-powerful that God can actually grant this incredible, amazing, sovereign permission to his creatures and yet still work every contingency, literally the trillions, quadrillions, and beyond of contingencies that exist in the in not just in the universe, but in just human life. And he can take those and he can work them out to the exact end that he desires. And so, you know, in our finite brains, we, we would certainly have to have our hands on every single chess piece, right? From the kings and the queens to the, to the most insignificant pawns. But God actually does not have to do that in order to bring the outcome to his desired conclusion. That's sovereignty at the heavenly level. I don't understand it, but I do believe it because I see it. I see it take place, certainly in the Word and, and, and even in observation of, of history. But then verse 12 says it this way, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Why does God and why has God predestined us according to a purpose? Remember now, this word predestined, as we said last time, this word predestined is referring to us who are believers, those who have been born again, bought, purchased with the blood of Christ at Calvary, we who are part of his covenant, redeemed family, we are predestined now according to a purpose that God has ordained and, and, and that he works out and is working out according to the counsel of his will. For what end? Well, here's the end, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Whose glory? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, the other powerful theme or one of the other powerful themes that emerges in the book of Ephesians is that everything is about Jesus. 
We are predestined, never mind the according to part. We are predestined that we should be to the praise of the glory of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, I believe it means that when we gave our life to Jesus and we were adopted into the family of God as his sons and daughters, it was for the predestined purpose that we should live our lives to the praise and glory of Jesus. That's why we do what we do. If there's a simple first-level answer to that question, why do we do what we do, or as Pastor John Piper would say, what is at the bottom of our joy, that's it. It's the glory of Jesus. Now, let me ask you, how does it change things when we begin to live with the glory of Jesus as our primary motivation? My goodness, we, we, we could go on and on about that, couldn't we? Because let's be honest, sometimes we can get the wrong things at the bottom of our joy, can't we? We, we can get just our own satisfaction and our own sense of worth and our own sense of well-being and comfort and all of those things can end up, they can, they can worm their way in to the bottom of our joy. And the problem is they're not a worthy foundation for our joy, right? And when any of those things, whether it be my comfort or my my prosperity or my well-being or my sense of worth in myself, when any of those things somehow slide in to the bottom of our joy, then our joy suddenly finds itself on an unstable and 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 temporary foundation. And that's not what God designs for his children. Jesus is meant to be there, Jesus and his glory. So let's go on then to verse 13. It says, In him, Jesus, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Well, um, little gear shift here. We're going to talk about a a phrase in the Word of God that has also come up uh, to a certain amount of debate uh, over over the decades and centuries in the body of Christ. Maybe not uh, so much of late. Certainly, in the, in in the the circles that many of us operate in, uh, we we are a a Baptist people doctrinally uh, at Fairview. Um, and this this term being sealed with the Holy Spirit is not unfamiliar to us as as Baptists. We we tend to take this verse, uh, Ephesians 1.13, and apply it to our doctrinal belief that um, once you are truly saved, uh, you are not ever going to be unsaved. Uh, We call that doctrine the security of the believer. Uh, I think in its original form, it was referred to as the perseverance of the saints, and I actually like that term better. (laughs) Those who are truly his are going to persevere to the end. There may be ups and downs. There may be detours. There may even be uh, there may be even some, some some breaks in fellowship with the Lord, but there is never a, a break of covenant. God is a covenant keeper, and we believe that. And this sealing by the Holy Spirit is certainly an element of that. Um, but 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 Paul here is is making a reference to something that 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 many theologians have studied and debated for for several centuries. Uh, he says, after we believe the message of the gospel, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So what does it really mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? And, and why does Paul call him in this verse the Holy Spirit 
of promise. Now, as I kind of alluded to, many theologians believe that this is merely a it's a theological reality that all saved persons share, right? When when we're saved, we are we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, meaning we belong to God now. The deal is sealed and it cannot be unsealed. I like that view. I got no issues with that view. That view would tend to uh, say that this sealing is not something that happens that we're conscious of. It's just, it's just a, it's a positional reality, right? I gave my life to Jesus. I was aware of my conversion experience. I was aware of, of, of that feeling that I am now forgiven and, and that I now belong to Jesus. But this sealing of the Holy Spirit is something that I am largely, if not completely, unconscious of. And as I said, that interpretation makes great sense to me. I think most of it, if not all of it, is is true. But some theologians, including John Wesley uh, and uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, who many of you may have heard of, he was pastor at the Westminster Chapel, which is certainly one of the most um, well-known and, and perhaps significant, and you could use the term prestigious pulpits in the Christian world in London. Um, but but Dr. Um, Dr. Uh, Lloyd-Jones, as well as Wesley, and some others believed that there might be a little bit more to this sealing of the Holy Spirit. Wesley believed that, that this was something that consciously occurred in the life of a believer that not only sealed the deal in heaven, but also sealed the deal in the person's heart that they were giving it all to Jesus. So could could Wesley be right? Well, I would certainly say be careful before you answer because I know this has been true in my own life. It's probably been true in many of your lives, and, and it's certainly true in almost all, if not every, great high-impact kingdom man or woman that we read about in church history and in revival history, and, I, and I, I'm talking about you know the true revivalists that that shook the world for the kingdom, the D.L. Moody's and the Spurgeons and uh, m- m- people of that stature. There was in nearly every case a defining moment in their journeys after they were saved that took them to a new level with the Lord and. You know, whatever you want to call it or name it, it happened. It, it, it happened to people like the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley. You can read their story. It happened to Charles Finney, one of the greatest revivalists of all time. Dr. Charles Stanley talks of a you know experience he had where the Lord sealed the deal in his heart that that he was a hundred percent belonged to the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, names that are household names in in in, in kingdom cultures. I would just ask it this way. Has anything like that ever happened to you? And and and, and I don't just mean a, a cool encounter with the Lord where, where he showed you how real he is and maybe you felt certain things. I'm talking about a moment that you couldn't go backwards from. Not just your salvation, but a moment where it clicked with you. Man, I'm really his. I'm really his. It's, it's a moment where something happened that you, you couldn't respond any other way but to say, this is all I want. Now, let me let me put it in, in lamest terms. It Many of us had a, had a, the experience of being saved at a very early age, those of us who were, were raised in church, and I count that a privilege. Uh, I was saved at the age of nine at Little Flat Creek Baptist Church. I remember it very well. I remember praying in the pastor's study. I remember being baptized on a, on a, on a revival meeting night. Um, 
by uh, preacher James Ivy, one of the one of the kindest men I ever knew. Um, I remember that vividly, but I also remember as a young adult when something happened in my heart, and and and, and I realized, wow, this is really who I am. This is really real to me. I remember that when I realized that, yes, this is really all I want now. Not that I was not saved when I was nine. Hear my, hear my heart, please. Not that I wasn't saved when I was nine, but my understanding of who I was in him and who the Holy Spirit was to me was certainly not fully developed at all. But as a young adult, it there, there, there was a season, uh, perhaps even an experience in my life where I, I realized that was the case. That's what Wesley believed this term, being sealed by the Holy Spirit, refers to. Tozer, A.W. Tozer, called this the internal witness. It's that point when you move beyond the place of the external witness of the facts of the gospel that you believe in to the internal witness of your heart that you can't not believe in if that makes any sense. Just a thought, just just some interpretations, not saying that I buy into every single one of those, but but it's a, it's it's a it's a good way to look at it. Uh verse 14. Uh Paul says, "Who, the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory." Now there's some cool stuff in this verse. First of all, the Holy Spirit who lives in us and with whom we are sealed is the guarantee of our inheritance. If you got the Holy Spirit, you got the inheritance. That's cool. But I love this language. He is our guarantee, listen to it, until the redemption of the purchased possession. (laughs) First of all, this, this word guarantee is a word that literally means to to pledge or make a down payment. So it's like Paul is saying the Holy Spirit living inside these mortal bodies of flesh is really just like a first installment of what we're going to be like when our redemption comes to its fullness. By the way, how does the verse refer to us? As purchased possessions. (laughs) Now, yes, it, it certainly that could be applied to all of creation, but it certainly applies to every individual believer. Do you think of yourself as a purchased possession? Now, I want you to think with me for a second. Because Paul uses this term. It's not a popular term in our culture today at all, but Paul uses it throughout the New Testament. There's really only one kind of person that can be a purchased possession. A slave. Now, we know that we're not slaves in the sense of hirelings or, or, or field hands. Why were we purchased? Well, the passage tells us, right? For the second time in three verses, to the praise of his glory. That's why we were purchased. Well, not to be too brief, But as I told you at the beginning of this study, Ephesians 1 is one of the most power-packed chapters of theological truth about who we are in Christ in all of Scripture. So you can only take so much of it as a time. That was a lot today, right? 
What's at the bottom of your joy? What does it mean to be sealed by the Spirit? And what does it mean to look at ourselves as purchased possessions? Boy, this is some great groundwork. This is foundational that the Lord is laying for us, and we've got over five chapters to go. So until next time, I want to pray, and uh, I hope you guys will join in and continue with us through this amazing, amazing little epistle. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you. For everyone listening to this, everyone following along in your word, Lord, those who belong to you, thank you, thank you, thank you for purchasing us with the most precious commodity in all of existence, the blood of your Son. We want it all to be for his glory. We want our lives to be for his glory. Thank you, Father, for making us your purchased and prized possession. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow, what a word. Thank you, Pastor Richie, and thanks to each of you who joined us today. We don't ever want to waste an opportunity to invite you into a marvelous relationship with the one who loves you more than anything, the one who died for you, Jesus. If today is your day of salvation, let God know. Just stop now, whatever you're doing, and, and, and speak directly to Him. Let Him know that you repent of all your sin, the thing that keeps you from God, it keeps you apart, that you accept the gift of Jesus dying for your sins on the cross and defeating hell on your behalf um, when He rose again from the grave. John 3.16 says it best, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Hey, if that's you today, we want to celebrate with you. All of heaven is rejoicing today. Thank you so much again for joining us. Hey, if you gave your life to Christ today through during this podcast or recently, let us know at salvation at fairviewknox.com. That is salvation at fairviewknox.com. Thanks again for listening. Join us next week as Pastor Jeff brings another word in his prophecy update. And also, don't forget, every Sunday we stream our worship experience live at 1040 a.m. Eastern Time every Sunday at fairviewknox.com. Hey, thanks again, and keep looking up.